We left off with Moses on the mountain making intercession on behalf of the people. When you come to the end of Exodus chapter 32, you would think that everything is fine. That we're all set to go, that Moses has gone before God and has been begging for atonement for the people and saying to God, if you will not forgive their sin and then blot me out. And God says, I'm not going to blot you out. Uh, I am going to hold those accountable who have sinned. Uh, this is this section, though, a really terrible chapter breaks because the scene is not over and the problem still remains. And I want you to notice this problem now in Exodus 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. The problem is not resolved. And it's interesting what is laid out here is notice that God says, Okay, Moses, I want you to go ahead and lead the people and take them to the promised land. And notice that God said, I'll send my angel ahead of you. I'll send a messenger to go before you. And I will drive out all of the inhabitants of the land. And you will possess the land that flows with milk and honey. However, I'm not going with you. I can't go with you. Because if I do, I'm going to kill you. I can't go with you. I'm going to kill you along the way. Because you are a stiff-necked, stubborn people. I want you to think about what's going on in that scene. I think it's interesting just to get a perspective of God at this moment that is this not the mercy of God at this moment? That God knows what these people are like. And if I go with you, this whole scene's going to happen over and over and over again. I can't go with you because we're going to keep going through this. We just saw in chapter 32, God said to Moses, move aside and I'm going to consume them in my wrath. He says, if I'm going to go with them, that's going to happen again. So I can't go with you. But I want you to think about what God is saying in that as well. And what's happening in that in that moment. Think about the picture that's being given here. Is here is the scene where God is saying, I'm still going to be faithful to my promises. I'll give you the land. The land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to give you that land and I will make sure that all those enemies are all driven out. And you're going to possess the land. And it will be a land flowing with milk and honey. But I'm just not going to be with you in all this. And I want you to get a sense of why this is such a big deal. Because remember, what has been the whole purpose of Exodus 25 to 31? What has been going on there? We spent a whole lesson there in verse 8 of Exodus 25 where God says, I want to dwell with my people. The whole reason for the tabernacle is so that God would be in the midst of the people, that God would go with them every step of the way. They weren't going to stay at Sinai forever, and so God says, build a tabernacle, build this sanctuary, and I'm going to be with you. And now God says, 
I'm not going to be with you. The tabernacle project is over. I'm not going with you in this. I'm going to let you go on up to the land and I'll send a messenger in front of you. But you're not going to have me with you any longer. That's the end of this. So go on up to the promised land. Moses, go ahead and take it and I'm going to let you have that. What would be your response to that? If God just said, you know what? I'm going to let you have all the blessings, but I'm just not going to be with you anymore. We're not going to have a relationship. I'll let you have all the good blessings. I'll continue to bless you. I'll make sure you get heaven. I'll make sure that I'll take care of you and watch over you along the way. But I'm not going to be in a relationship with you anymore. Notice what the people say in verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Notice what the says of the people. They heard this as a disastrous word. This is a terrible message. This is the bad news. If I could have my whole side tangent of Isaiah's message of the good news is that God is with us. God not with us is the bad news. It's the disastrous message. And that's what's happening here. God says... I'm not with you. I'm not going to go with you. I'm going to consume you if I do. And this is now called a disastrous word. This is bad news. And they mourn over this. And I think it is so important to see in these people that they recognize that the blessings of God are absolutely worthless if I don't have God. If God is not with me, then what good is it that I would have all these blessings? So what that we go to the promised land? Lord, the whole point is that we would be with you. And I think that's an important thing for us to have in our lens as we talk about God and our walk with God in faith. Is sometimes we present the gospel and present Christianity as if. We follow God because this is it's going to make your life better now. And don't you want to be in heaven rather than hell? What do we present it as? Not about being with God. Just all the blessings. You, you know, we'll all be in heaven and we'll be floating on, on clouds and swinging in hammocks and it'll all be great paradise, you know. And There's not a concept about, I want to be with God. I want to be with the one who has done this for us. And that's why I asked the question, if you were to say, well, you can still have all the outcome, but you can't be with God. What would you think about that? And I'm impressed that the people do not accept, well, hey, we get to go to the promised land anyway. What's the big deal, right? I mean, I would half expect that answer. Well, you know, we don't really need God anyway, so that's where we're going to go in the land. He'll take care of all the enemies. Still going to be a land flowing in milk and honey. So let's just go on up. No big deal, right? Now the people realize that if we don't have God, we don't have anything. If we don't have God, we simply don't have 
anything. You know, later on, you'll hear some strange things that God will say in the days of the prophets, where there will be this recollection of wishing that the people of Israel had the heart that they did back at the beginning. And you'll read through Israel's history and you'll go, well, where was that? (laughs) Right? I mean, they're idolatrous. We see calf worship right here out the onset. And it's not going to get any better as they go along. But I think it's pointing to this moment. There's a repentance right here. There is a mourning. There is a sorrow. They are cut to the heart about this. They take off the the ornaments, as God said. And those verse 6 says, they don't put them on all the rest of the journey. There is this contrition that is seen in these people. And I believe that's what God is saying. Oh, for a heart like that, when presented with the consequences of their sin, they are devastated. They are in utter ruin. Over what they have lost. To lose the presence of God. Is to lose everything to them. And they are not content to say. Well we'll just have the blessings. And that will be okay. They want God with them. And to help us see that idea a little bit more. You'll notice now in verses 7 through 11. What's going to happen is. This paragraph gives us a picture Of what exactly is being lost. Verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent. And pitch it outside the camp. Far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord. Would go out to the tent of meeting. Which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent. All the people would rise up. And each would stand at his tent door. And watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak to Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, son of Nun, A young man would not depart from the tent. Notice the scene that's being given here is a picture of what was lost. Here's the way things were. Moses was able to speak with God. And the language that is used in verse 11 is staggering. He speaks with the Lord as a man speaks to a friend. I can't even begin to get my mind around the idea of being able to talk to God like that. I mean, think about how you talk with your friends. You know, there's no formalism. It's just whatever comes to your mind you're talking about. That's what Moses could do. Moses just walks into the tent of meeting. The pillar of the cloud comes down. Boom. Here is Moses talking with God face to face. And notice all of Israel. It's a, it's a scene of worship. They all stand at the tent and are watching all of this happen as Moses can speak to God this way. There's such a picture of intimacy at this moment of how Moses could communicate with God. And now God just said, I'm not going with you. I'm not going to be in your midst. We can forget this sanctuary. I can't go with you. 
these verses are trying to describe the seriousness of what is being lost and to recognize what a blessing had existed up to this point where God and Moses are speaking and Moses can then go out to the people and tell all the people, here's what God says and can give that to them. And now God says, that's not going to happen anymore. So notice what now Moses is going to do about this in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. Immediately Moses says, well, I can't do that. How am I supposed to lead the people? I can't go lead these people by myself. I need your presence. You have to go with us. If you don't go with us, how am I going to know what is right and wrong? What is the right way? What is the wrong course? What we should do? What we should not do? I used to come into the tent of meeting and find all that out on a regular basis. If you're not going to come with us, how will we know what we ought to do? What a, what a great thought that Moses understands. If you're not with us, we can't know you and we can't know your ways. You say, take them on up to the land. Lord, that's not even possible. You have to be with us. You have to be with us to accomplish this. Notice what God says in verse 14. He said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now let me let you underline the, the word you. Because that is not a plural you. That is a singular you. What God just said is, Moses, I will go with you. Not Israel. You. And Moses, I will give you rest. Okay, Moses, I'll be with you. Not going with the nation. Not going to be in the midst of the people. That's not going to happen. How many of us would have been like, well, you know, that's better than nothing. At least God's going to be with me. You know, all right. Hey, you know, those guys are terrible, stiff-necked, awful people. And we know that they, I mean, just like my brother said, you know the people. Uh, What are we going to do? So at least God will be with me and I can teach him, right? Moses' second response in verse 15. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Notice what Moses says. You can't just go with me. You have to go with us. You have to be with us. And notice how Moses is pleading on behalf of the people. The people are stubborn and sinful and deserving of God's wrath. And in spite of that, Moses is pleading on behalf of the people. You have to go with us. You can't go with just me. And notice the big point that he makes. How are we going to know if we are pleasing to you if you are not with all of us? How will we know if we're in the right with you unless you are in our presence? In fact, he goes a little further and says, 
if you don't go with us, then we're actually not God's people. You being with us is what makes us distinct. That's what separates us from the rest of the nations. Notice he doesn't say, well, because we're so good and so righteous. No, can't argue that one. What makes Israel different? One thing. God in the midst. That's the only thing that makes them distinct. And Moses uses that and says, we can't be your people if you don't go with all of us. And to see Moses pleading for Israel's sake, not for himself, but on behalf of the people, you need to come with us. Verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. What does God say is the reason why he will do what Moses says? Because the people are so good. Because they need a second chance. You know, everybody deserves a second chance, right? No. There is only one reason that God gives why he will go ahead and be with the people. Because Moses has found favor in the sight of God. Because this is the one that is well-pleased. Because this is the one in whom the Lord delights because of him. God can go ahead and go with the people. And I want you to see as we've been doing each night the parallel of Moses to the new Moses in Jesus. Because the only reason God can be with us and be in our midst and we can have any relationship with him is not because, well, we're good. Or because, hey, we deserve a second chance. Or, hey, we're not as bad as everybody else. There is only one reason. Because of the proclamation that the Lord makes at the baptism of Jesus, at the transfiguration of Jesus. This is the one in whom I delight. This is my beloved one in whom I'm well pleased. And notice it's an echo of Exodus. This is the one through whom... I can be with these people because of you. Because of what you've done. Because of your righteousness. And Jesus becomes that one who intercedes so that God can be with us. Now notice where this turns. Verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. Now I want to state here at the outset. It's a bad idea to start your lesson or study right there. Because a lot of times that happens, right? You know, Moses said, show me your glory. And we make this whole big thing about what Moses did right there. And you have ripped the context away. And you must stop here and ask the question, what is Moses doing here? Why is he asking this? Is Moses just coming along and going, well, now that we got that settled, show me something really cool. You know, I'm really looking for something neat. It doesn't fit with the storyline at all. And yet often that's how this is portrayed. You know, Moses wants to see something really neat and God says, well, you can't. That's not what's happening. What has been the dialogue back and forth? God says, I'm not going with any of you. Moses says, you can't do that. How will I know how to lead the people? How will I know your ways? Okay, 
I will go only with you, Moses. Moses goes, you can't do that because then the people aren't distinct. The only reason we're your people is because you're with us. And God goes, okay, because you find favor in my sight, I will go with you. What's Moses doing right here? By then his next words are, show me your glory. But proof. Prove that you're going to stay with us all the way. Because remember what has just happened. God has said, I'm not with them anymore. And the request of showing the glory of the Lord, if you've studied through the book of Exodus, this is not the first time this has happened. God has shown himself in his glory On a number of instances, one of the times you have where the people are crying out for food and God says, I'm going to show my glory. And he comes down in the pillar and shows that to the people and is proving, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of you. That's the proof. Here he comes. Visible scene. When the covenant was ratified in chapter 24, we looked at that chapter And we see the blood of the covenants put on on the people. And the same thing happens. The glory of the Lord comes down. I believe the point is that at this moment, God has said, I'm not with you anymore. We don't have that visible representation anymore. And it is a request to see that. Show me that you're with us. The tabernacle seems to be compromised and is not going to be built, it appears. That's going to change, thankfully. But at the moment, Moses is arguing on behalf of the people, you need to come back to us. And you need to be in our midst. Show me your glory. Show me that you're going to be with us every step of the way. Because you can imagine in Moses' mind, they are a stiff-necked people, and God is right that he will consume them. And so, you've said you will be with us. Show that. God's answer in verse 19. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. What it appears is God says, I'm going to do more than you've requested. You say, show me your glory. I'm going to show you more. I'm going to show you as much of my glory As you can possibly handle. I'm going to give you everything that you can possibly watch and look at and see. So that you know. Rather than just simply saying, okay, here I am. See the Lord in the cloud. Notice what God is going to do. He says, I am going to make verse 19. All my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim my name before you. We're going to talk a little bit more about that tomorrow morning in chapter 34. But think about for a minute. So what is the description of the glory of God in this scene? 
And it talks about how the earth, you know, broke open and the lightning flew and, you know, the wind. That's not the point, right? God says, I'm going to show you my glory and it's going to be all of my goodness passing before you. And then he says, and I will proclaim my name. Now, we read things about that and be like, okay, my name. Well, what's the big deal about that? The name represents the character of the person. That's why God talks about his name that way. Because it's not like Moses didn't know the name of the Lord. That was back in chapter 3. I am who I am. The whole burning bush. All that has gone on. It's not like Moses doesn't know who he's talking to. Why is God going to say, I'm going to proclaim my name. Is that you are going to see my character, my goodness. You are going to get an understanding at this moment, Moses, of who I am. And notice what the display of that is in verse 19. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy to whom I show mercy. Now, we need to understand what God's saying about himself when he says that. For a long time, people will read that and say, so what God is arguing is that he can be merciful to whoever he feels like, and he can be gracious to whomever he feels like. Would that help Moses at this moment? Here's Moses saying, okay, I understand that you cannot be with us, but I need you to be with us. And God goes, okay, I'll be with you. No, not just me, all of us. You need to go with us all the way. God says, okay, I will go with you. Okay, now prove that. Show me your glory that we will know that you will be with us. Okay, here's how you know that I will be with you. I will proclaim my name, display my glory. And that glory is I give salvation to whoever I feel like. And I'd be like, well, that's not comforting at all. <laughs> that, that just totally put me back a step and now I'm concerned again. That doesn't work. That can't be what it means when God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That God is saying, I am capricious and I can just choose willy-nilly whoever I feel like and I'm completely free to be sovereign to do that. A lot of teachings say that's what God means by that. And that does not fit this context at all. Here's what that means. If I say I'm going to be merciful to somebody, then that person's going to receive mercy. And if I say I'm going to be gracious to a group of people, then I'm going to be gracious to that group of people. Moses, I have told you that I am going to show mercy and grace and be with you all the way to the promised land. And if I say, I will be merciful and gracious to Israel all the way to the promised land, then that's exactly what I'm going to do. It is a picture of the abundant compassion that God has. If God chooses someone to receive favor, then they must receive favor because that's what the way God's character is. This is why he could say, I'm going to show you my name, my character. You are going to understand who I am 
Because when I say something, it has to happen. And so if I say I will go with you, then I am going to go with you. And if I say you are going to receive favor and grace, then you are going to receive it. And if I say you are going to receive mercy, then you are going to receive mercy. And this is exactly what Moses needs as a confirmation is that God is saying, I will be faithful in the face of Israel's unfaithfulness. That makes sense of the story. Because Moses' concern is, they're going to do this again. And I can't have you leave us. So how will I know that you will stay with us? Because when God says, I'm with you, then He's with you. And if God says, I'm going to give you mercy, then I'm going to give you mercy. And if He says, we're going to the promised land, then we're going to the promised land. Now, how many times, how many times have we wondered if God is going to be merciful to us in spite of our sins? How many times did we look at our life and go, look at all the sins that I've committed. Look at all the terrible things I've done. And even I've come to the Lord, I continue to sin and make awful mistakes. Continue to break His Word. And I just don't know that I'm going to be okay. How many Christians live their lives in fear of Judgment Day? And if you were to ask them, are you going to be going to heaven? The answer is, well, I sure hope so. This is the point of this about the character of God. The whole point of saying why we can know that we belong to Him and why we know that those sins in the past are forgiven is because God said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will show grace on whom I show grace. If I had 20 minutes and I don't, so I had to cut it out. Romans 9. It's just quoted in Romans 9 as proof of how God was faithful to Israel. Paul uses this as proof. This is the point that's being made. Is I held save because I declared I will save and I will show mercy because I declare that I show mercy. And the point he makes in Romans is because it doesn't depend upon how good we are. And that is the big message in Exodus 33. It can't depend upon how good Israel is. If it's dependent upon their righteousness, then it's over. And good thing, because if it's dependent upon my righteousness and how good I am, then it's over. And that's why we get into this mode of, well, I just don't know, but we don't understand that our forgiveness is not dependent upon human will or exertion or I'm going to bring my checklist of good deeds before God. Well, I went to church every Sunday and so you've got to forgive me because of that or I wasn't as bad as my neighbor. I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. Um, I didn't kill somebody and I didn't commit adultery. That's good enough, right? Never mind, I didn't love my neighbor as myself or all the other things I did wrong. I just did these other things that are pretty good, right? 
the whole point God is trying to say is our forgiveness depends upon his purpose of election. It's the whole argument Paul's making. Because God, before the foundation of the world, said, I am going to have a people. And this is how I'm going to have a people. And he declared that he would be merciful. And he would be gracious. And he would receive people, even though what they've done is broken God's law. That he would send one who would come. And because of his righteousness, God would be able to forgive the nation people this is the power of what paul writes in second timothy chapter 2 and verse 8 here paul writes remember jesus christ risen from the dead the offspring of david is preached in my gospel which for which i'm suffering bound and with chains as a criminal but the word of god is not bound Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Now if we deny him, he will deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful. And he cannot deny himself. You want to read that and go, well, if we are faithless, then he's not going to keep his... No. This is what you're seeing right here. This is the majesty of the character of God. Is Israel right now is faithless. And God remains faithful to what he said he would do. And keeps his promises. God's faithfulness is what's Israel's greatest hope. Isn't that what we see when you read through the Old Testament? Why does Israel go on and on and on for years and years after judges and kings and prophets? Because God's faithfulness is their greatest hope. Why is Israel receiving mercy through all of that faithlessness? Why do they continue to have God do this? Because God is faithful. That's the big message. This is what it means. And here you're seeing the beautiful picture. The people are broken by their sins. And Moses now intercedes on their behalf. And God now declares, I will go with these people because my character is that I have decreed mercy and I will show it to them. And for us, the message is the same. That God's faithfulness is our greatest hope. It is our only hope. Is that God will be faithful. Well, why will we receive mercy even though we sin and we're faithless? Because God is faithful. And like Israel, we are broken by our sins. And Jesus goes before the Lord and makes intercession on our behalf. And the Lord declares, I will still go with you because I am merciful. And I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. The end of the servant song prophecy of Isaiah 53 said that. 
that Jesus does not make intercession for the righteous. He makes intercession for the transgressors. Our hope is in the faithfulness of God who has said, if we will be broken by our sins and we will make our appeal to God and we give him our lives, then he will be merciful and he will be gracious because that is who he is. Let's take a five-minute break and then we'll have the next lesson. Thank you.